Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Mungo McCallum was one of Australia's most influential political journalists. He was the author of the original edition of The Good, The Bad and The Unlikely, Australia's Prime Ministers. Today, I'm talking to Frank Bongiorno, Professor of History at the Australian National University, about his updated edition of The Good, The Bad and The Unlikely, Australia's Prime Ministers from Barton to Albanese, and to which Frank contributed two new chapters. Frank, welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Greg. Judging from the number of reprints for The Good, The Bad and The Unlikely, it seems to occupy a special place in the recording of our political history. What is it about Mungo McCallum's perspective that continues to appeal to Australians? Well, Mungo was a really lively writer and obviously many people knew him really through his journalism rather than through his books, at least initially. Um, He was a well-regarded political correspondent, a political commentator whose career had gone back many decades, who'd written for a number of publications. Um, And the book draws on that experience. Uh, It's not a highly academic work. Um, He's quite um, open, I think, about the ways in which he put it together, that it was based primarily on on publicly available sources, on Hansard, uh, those sorts of things. But it it also relies really heavily, I think, on his own experience. The chapters, most of them, of course, have been written by by Mungo, and they they draw on, you know, his his very um, large collection of recollections and anecdotes. Um, He met many of the prime ministers who are depicted in the book, and, of course, those who he didn't meet, he was kind of the inheritor of, of of a lot of stories and a lot of folklore going all the way back, really, to the early 20th century. So there is that real sense, I think, of the storyteller at work and the storyteller who was also sometimes an eyewitness to the events that he's, he's talking about. Mungo's purely factual account is both meticulous and comprehensive, but as you alluded to, those facts are coloured by just as many jokes and stories What else did Mungo want us to know about our political leaders? Well, he wanted us to know about their humanity, I think. In In a lot of ways, it's a kind of tribute in some ways to Australian democracy. It's affectionate, even when he's dealing with individuals who are often regarded as um, not if not scoundrels, at least as um, you know, inclining towards the unscrupulous at times. You know, a figure like Billy Hughes, for instance. Um, we we find, I think, in Mungo's stories, a basic um, connection and affection. I think for the individuals concerned, um, those who undertake public life, who go into politics, are in many ways normal people. They share our frailties, sometimes our prejudices, our appetites, and at the same time, they're they're different from us. They're apart from us. They move in a world that's very different from the everyday world of of even a political correspondent, a political journalist such as Mungo. And that's, I think, what he's often grappling with, their, their normality and their humanity at the same time as their quirkiness and their difference and their specialness. And and the very best and most memorable portraits in there um, do that, I think, extremely well. And, and, you know, it's quite obvious who he, I won't say who he likes, but those who 
he's best able to connect with um, in, in other than just a, a kind of an analytical way, those who there's some sort of emotional connection with. And, and Billy Hughes is clearly one of those, but it's also true, I think, of, you know, figures like obviously Menzies and and and, and Gorton. And, and particularly, I think, you know, when, when Mungo was perhaps very much in his prime and at the peak of his fame as a journalist, uh, those during the 1970s, uh, and I'm thinking they're particularly of, of Gough Whitlam, but also Bob Hawke, who's a major figure already in Australian public life by the 1970s, and of course, a Prime Minister in the 80s. Has Mungo been fair in his assessment, because some of them are quite scathing, or is fairness an obstacle to the truth in this context? Well, I think he always has an opinion, and we can see where Mungo's sympathies lie. Um, you know, it, it's quite clear, for instance, that he's he's much more sympathetic towards Whitlam than he is towards Menzies, quite obviously. And that's fine, I think. We can be quite comfortable with an author having a point of view. I mean, sometimes neutrality can come across as, as forced. Um, but I, I'm struck by the fact that he does try to be fair, I think, to all of his subjects, that he recognises their strengths as well as their foibles. He was very preoccupied, as I am, with the art of politics. Um, though he can admire the, the capacity of Menzies to look, to sound, to act like, you know, everyone's image of, of a prime minister, at least back in the 1950s and 60s, um, without necessarily admiring the things that Menzies stood for. And I think that was often the position of, of, of Mungo. I mean, Mungo was... Again, he was at his peak during a period of enormous change and conflict in Australian politics. That period, I think, of the 1970s, uh, late 60s, perhaps through to about the mid-1990s. And, you know, it was the period of the dismissal. It was the, the period of, of the end of the great, you know, the long economic boom of Australia after the Second World War, which, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Mungo is a product of those years of prosperity. All of that was coming to an end during the time when Mungo was at the peak of his fame. And, you know, I think he captures that sense of change. He captures the atmosphere, the almost febrile atmosphere around politics at times during the, the late 60s and 1970s and, and indeed even into the Hawke period in the 80s. And, um, you know, again, for that, I can read Mungo's portraits of these prime ministers um, as much for the atmosphere of politics they evoke as for the, the detail. I mean, detail we can get, you know, you can get detail from a Wikipedia entry, but you don't get passion uh, and storytelling in a Wikipedia entry. And I think that's what M Mungo was best at. And what, what I've tried, I guess, to emulate in my own contributions to the book. Let's talk about the two new chapters you've contributed to The Good, The Bad and The Unlikely. One former Prime Minister that continues to be in the public eye, Scott John Morrison. Um, it's a fascinating story, you relate, um, arising from a, a very ordinary background. And uh, I was immediately taken by the little story. And I think this goes to your comment. I've taken the lead from Mungo. Scott Morrison's early staged career uh, in the role of the artful dodger in a local church production of Oliver. Should we be judging a person by stories such as these? It's not. No, that's right. I think I did add that one. Uh, obviously, there's there's more biographical uh, data or information around on Morrison now than there was when Mungo drafted, uh, well, not not that chap. Well, I suppose he drafted the Morrison chapter, but ended with the 2019 election. Um, that, that's basically where the book, uh, the previous edition of the book, ended. So, 
I had to um, pick up the story there, but I also did return to um, you know, the earlier part of Morrison's life and career because there, there was simply more information available now than there would have been to Mungo back in, in 2019. And, and that was one of them, yes, that he had a career as a child actor, not only on the stage as the Artful Dodger, but also in advertisements. And, um, you know, I think we could, we could see the continuing um, influence, I think, of Morrison as the performer um, uh, during his prime ministership. Uh, it does place some of it in, in perspective. But, um, yeah, with Morrison, obviously, I needed to tell a really important story of... Um, of COVID, of the pandemic, and, and his role as Prime Minister during that. And, you know, I think a lot more information about him has become uh, available, you know, about his, his background, I think his religious um, sympathies and affiliations, which are clearly intimately related to his politics um, in ways that we're still grappling with. But we certainly have more clues now than we had back in 2019. There's much more on the public record. Um, you know, I remember there was the um, uh, a speech he gave to a, a Christian conference, for instance, which was, I don't think officially recorded, but um, which we all got to, to to hear and, you know, the transcript circulated and we got a much stronger sense, I think, of the kind of apocalyptic strain within Morrison's thinking um, as a, uh, a religious man. Um, and, you know, some of the, the, the peculiarities and oddities of his prime ministership, um, which have only become evident, of course, uh, once it finished, you know, the, the very strange signing up of himself to multiple ministries, which, of course, Mungo couldn't have known about, but which I think in inevitably now affect our judgment of him as a leader about his, his um, you know, what was driving him. And I, I end the chapter on a still slightly puzzled note, I think, because um, I think there's still a, a bit of mystery there around Morrison. He's still sitting there in the parliament. Um, we, we don't quite know what drives him. Um, but uh, my own suspicion is that the religious impulses are incredibly uh, important. Um, and uh, I think we do have more, uh, you know, um, knowledge of that, more clues than would have been available to Mungo uh, four years ago. And there certainly will be much more written, as there will be for Anthony Albanese, our current Prime Minister. But I wonder how much is the same and how much has changed for Anthony Albanese in his ascent to Prime Minister? Yeah, so this is a fresh chapter. Um, obviously, Albanese wasn't Prime Minister um, when Mungo was still with us, so this one had to be done from scratch. Uh, it's interesting to think about how Mungo would have reacted um, to an Albanese Prime Ministership. In a lot of ways, Albanese reaches back into Mungo's period in Australian political journalism. Mungo would have known Albanese's mentors and influences extremely well. The key mentor for, for Albanese was Tommy Wren, um, who was a minister, of course, uh, in the Whitlam government, minister for urban and regional development, that, that key new ministry of that period. Um, in a lot of ways, the Whitlam period is very important for understanding Albanese. He was obviously very young in that period, but he's very much the kind of career he's been able to make, and I think many of his political sympathies, we can relate to the Whitlam era, that era where public provision, I think, was a, a very strong theme, um, the, the role of the state, um, the role of government, the, the idea that Australia should make things, which seems to be important to Albanese. All of these sorts of ideas we can see as very much a part of the Whitlam period, and, and I, I think that does shine through with Albanese. Um, 
Obviously, his political career comes comes later, but he worked for Tom Uren in the 1980s when Uren was a, a Hawke government minister, very much on the outer. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Albanese has been on the outer in his political career. He was a member of the left um, within the New South Wales Labor Party, which was the minority faction, often beleaguered. Um, he was the... Uh, you know, it's called Assistant General Secretary within head office in Sussex Street. And it's one of the toughest gigs in Australian politics because the secretaries from the usually from the political right, the, the you know, the Labor right, and then there's two assistant secretaries, one from the right, one from the left. So always in a, a minority in that sort of situation. On the other hand, as a member of Young Labor and as a student politician, he, he was sometimes, you know, part of the winning side. And um uh, yes, he was a former student politician, but he also seems to have held student politics in, well, if not contempt, certainly um, in, in a rather negative light because a lot of Albanese's political involvements, even from when he was a young man, were actually outside the university, outside student politics, within young labour, but not, not actually within a, a university context. He had some involvement in student politics, but... He had a rather ambivalent attitude. He, he seems to have also seen it as not quite real politics. And it's interesting, very recently, I noticed he dismissed the Young Greens um, uh, MP from Brisbane as student politician. He said, we don't listen to student politicians. And it was hard not to be reminded of the fact that he was a student politician himself once. Let's go back in time. And uh, Robert Menzies, our longest serving PM, a giant of the conservative movement, though it would be fair to say not so much of a giant through Mungo's eyes. Yeah, I mean, he he clearly um, was pretty anti-Menzies, I think, and, and that would have been a relatively conventional attitude, I think, from, I guess, you know, journalists with, with kind of Labor leanings uh, in, in that period. I mean, Menzies, of course... Is more than a prime minister in Australian history. He stands for a whole era. He stands for a whole tradition. Um, he's often understood as the founder of the Liberal Party. He wasn't really, but he was certainly critical in its foundation. And so I think when you're dealing with Menzies and when Mungo deals with Menzies, he's also dealing with Australia of that era. He's saying something about Australia of the 1950s and early 1960s, the period before that, that massive transformation that I talked about earlier you know, when our politics becomes, I think, something quite quite different. So, you know, I think, um, you know, M Mungo in a lot of ways um, is providing a kind of critique and account of Australia in that particular time of, of the 1950s when he's dealing with things. as a place of conservatism, a slightly sleepy place, a place that's not really quite in the world in the way that, you know, Mungo clearly thinks it should have been a, a place that's too inclined to accept the kind of templates of Cold War conflict and anti-communism and all the rest of it that Menzies, of course, made very much uh, central to his own political career in that period. And from the big players to the small, and Mungo still made time for the small players, some of them uh, mavericks, often from the conservative side of politics, Black Jack McEwen, John McEwen. Uh, a stopgap PM, Mungo notes, but still a formidable presence, despite an upbringing where he dined on rabbit stew and reading only a dictionary. Yeah, I think he's the kind of character who appealed to Mungo. Um, he, he was an absolute giant, of course, in the Menzies era, second only to Menzies in significance within, within governments. Um, and Menzies himself regarded McEwen as a formidable figure. He surely would have been... Um, 
uh, a prime minister for more than a brief period if he'd been uh, a member of any party other than the country party. Um, he, he was by far the most formidable successor to Menzies when Menzies went in 1966. He, of course, played a, a role in blocking the progress of, of William McMahon. Uh, he, he basically placed a veto on McMahon becoming uh, prime minister when Holt died, in, in uh, Holt disappeared at sea in 1967. But, you know, also a formidable figure in the world of policy in the 1950s and 60s. His role in trade policy in the 50s, in forging a new uh, economic relationship with Japan in 1957, a very important landmark. And then, of course, um, his more controversial role in the 1960s as, you know, an advocate of, of, of high levels of tariff protection. We still occasionally hear the term McEwenism. It's a term that's still used in Australia for um, you know, high levels of protection of industry. So a, a very important figure um, of that period, less so as prime minister. I mean, he only becomes prime minister for a brief period after Harold Holt's disappearance, but he plays an absolutely critical role in determining the succession to, to, to Holt uh, in, in that period, which, of course, turned out to be Prime Minister Gorton. Mungo begins this book with the statement, we seem to have, have had more prime ministers than strictly necessary. But he concludes the book with, we may not always have liked them, but we could not have done without them. Now, that sounds a little like Mungo might have retained some faith in our system of democracy. Yeah, and I, I think broadly speaking, he was an advocate for Australia's particular form of democracy, of parliamentary democracy, a kind of adapted Westminster system, I guess. And I, I get no sense from Mungo's writings that he was any great critic of of that particular way of doing things. Mungo, of course, came from a, a, a family that had been involved in politics for a very long time, since the 19th century. And, uh, um, you know, I think he... he was was an admirer of Australian democracy. He he understood that you would get play bad faith players. You know, you get participants in it who were um, prayers on humanity, as Manning Clark might have called them, um, as well as people who were more admirable and visionaries, the dreamers. So, um, you know, he 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 was aware of the kind of humanity in the round that was attracted to politics, as you would have to have been as someone hanging around the parliamentary press gallery for as long as he did. I mean, you would have got to see both the positive and the negative and much in between. And um, for all that, I mean, the book is very much almost a hymn of praise in a way to the, the, the to Australian democracy. And, and, and in the end, yes, I mean, he basically pays tribute, I think, to anyone who's occupied the office of prime minister, because I think he understands that, it's it's an office of heavy responsibility. Um, it's not an easy job. It's one of the hardest jobs imaginable. Not everyone does it equally well. And the book is about that. It's about the fact that some people have done the job much better than others. But I think he could admire anyone who's willing to 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 basically pursue it and then to practice it. Frank, it's wonderful to get your insights into Mungo McCallum's work. And thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Greg. I've been talking to Frank Bongiorno about the good, the bad and the unlikely, Australia's Prime Ministers from Barton to Albanese. It's published by Black Ink and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. 
To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.